Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is Mornings Without Carmen here this morning. I am Peter Kapsner filling in for today. For this whole week, I was filling in. Just so delightful to be with all of you, Paul Perot in studio. I'll be back in studio again next week as Carmen has one more week off and what stands to be her longest vacation she's taken since she took over the morning show job. Definitely. And of course, I'm still scratching my head. A fitness camp. A fitness camp. We, we continue, torturing herself We continue to marvel about that, indeed. And Paul, if I can just be a little indulgent for a second and give a shout out to my wife, Hallie, this morning. Uh, today is oh. June 11th and it is our 27th woo, wedding woo, anniversary. Woo. So happy anniversary. Hold on. Well, you you're, you're going to come back with some music, I am I certain. But uh, grateful to have been married for these 27 years. And marriage has a lot of ups and downs and uh, struggles and trials and triumphs and joy. But uh, so glad to be having uh, this partner to walk through life with. I know, Paul. It was a bit of a surprise. So looking forward to having... 27 years is a surprise? It was a surprise to you. I was oh, I was oh, well oh. aware when I woke up. <laughs> Just making sure morning. we have no. this straight. Yeah, no, I was definitely well well aware of that. But looking forward ahead of this first hour of the show, and we have Matthew Hawkins coming up here in just a, a couple of minutes, and then Chris Martin as well, and some of the topics. And just reflecting on this week that has been passed, too, it's been a bit of a rough week in terms of some of the things that we've had to talk about because of Yet another set of headlines, this time coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention, in which some revelations came from theologian Russell Moore about what may have been happening and what was happening behind the scenes again in terms of some moral failures. And it just gets difficult to cover. It can feel like when we're waking up in the morning like this and starting our day and wanting to continue to fix our eyes and follow Jesus and and, and do that work when we see some of these failures spinning. And, and just want to encourage you this morning as we walk through some of this that I think we are experiencing a pretty cataclysmic shift in how Christianity is going to be expressed in the future in our country. I remember when the Rabbi Zacharias revelations came out not too long ago that I was with my students in class, and I said, you know, as a student of history, when these kind of events happen, they become these watershed moments. And clearly, Rabbi was only one among many that uh, the last 20 years have been littered with. But there there gets to be a time where you cross a threshold and you enter into a different kind of era. And told my class at that time that Christianity, as it's been expressed in our culture, is effectively over. And uh, it will gasp along uh, for a breath for a bit. But in terms of how we've experienced life in the kingdom in this country, uh, it really is going to come to an end. And that's that's a pretty common experience throughout history where different expressions of Christianity come to an end. So where's the encouragement and that the encouragement is that uh, expressions of Christianity are different from Christianity itself. Expressions of Christianity are different from God's kingdom itself. And human beings get involved and it gets corrupted at times, whether it be the indulgences of the Catholic Church in the 16th century, whether it be the failures in the French Revolution, whether it be the Crusades. We see these failures. But here is the amazing thing about it. We really do serve the king of an eternal kind of kingdom, the promises of Isaiah, that there will be a government that rests upon his shoulders. And he is the everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom. And so... 
we do the hard work uh, of coming up out of the ashes in repentance and humility and call on our king to lead us yet again. He really is real. This kingdom is the real deal. And Christianity will survive even if this version of Christendom is now coming to an end. So with that as a perspective, we'll invite Matt Hawkins into the conversation, talk a little bit more about what happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, give some input into that insight and some hope and encouragement. Welcome again this morning to Mornings Without Carmen. And to you and Hallie. Mr. Hawkins, dare I say that that is a new walk-up song since last we spoke? It is. It is a new walk-up song since last we spoke. Are you, are, are you able, and is this okay to evolve like that in your musical taste? How did, how did this come I, about? I think so. I th- well, I wanted something upbeat, and it had been over, over a year uh, that we'd been using the Mercy, Mercy, Mercy tune, and I thought, thought, we needed to, need, thought we needed to change it up a bit. I love it. That was quite the eye-opener today. Well, I know, uh, just as part of the opener, and you and I talked before the show as well a little bit about how we wanted to handle some of these difficult topics, complex topics, and, and frankly, sad topics and coming out of the revelations of the Southern Baptist Convention, another in the long line of what we've seen, and really wanting to emphasize that the kingdom will remain in the end, even as yeah. uh, oftentimes people fail in the midst of it. But but some of our listeners, or maybe perhaps many of them, might not be terribly familiar with some of the references we've been talking about this week from the sure. Southern Baptist Convention. So why don't you give us kind of a flyover at first? Sure. Well, I'll try to be as swift and as simple as I can because uh, it can get complex fairly quickly. But let's start with the basics. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest network of churches in North America, um, over 46,000 churches. Um, and uh, we, we, in shorthand, we call it a denomination, but it's not, for those of you who uh, are part of, say, mainline denominations or uh, similar traditions, um, the Southern Baptist Convention is a convention in that there's not a top-down hierarchy, right? Southern Baptist life and most Baptist life. It's all cooperative is a, is a common word that they use in that there's no, not a top-down hierarchy. So every church is local and autonomous. And to the extent that we uh, have a, uh, you know, larger institutions, either the SBC quote unquote, or uh, all the, the myriad of that actually make up the Southern Baptist Convention, um, uh, there's no, no one entity we call them. No one institution has authority over others. And so it, that kind of gets complex. And so our annual meeting, which is uh, run next week, um, we uh, run by Robert's Rules of Order. And it's uh, it's a it's a big deal in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. It happened. It got canceled last year for the first time since World War Two. And uh, we have a lot of business to discuss. And so uh, I am a, I'm a former employee uh, of 17 years with something called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And that is essentially the public policy and moral concerns arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so they have offices in Nashville, Tennessee and Washington, D.C., and they're basically responsible for two basic things. It's speaking to Southern Baptists on moral, ethical and public policy issues. And then on matters of consensus, speaking on behalf of Southern Baptists uh, in the public square, uh, in particular to the federal government and the culture at large. So we, um, <clears throat> we've historically played a pretty significant, if not outsized, role in American evangelicalism. And what you have here in the last couple, last few years, and and certainly really coming to a peak in the last few weeks, is uh, a struggle uh, for 
the direction of the convention. Um, and uh, the, the ERLC is one of just many institutions. Um, we have a North American mission board, and we have an international mission board, and we have six seminaries and a number of other institutions. Uh, one of those institutions is something called the SBC. And their basic role is to promote what we call the cooperative program. It's the annual SBC budget and churches give to that voluntarily. And they're also responsible for holding the annual meeting. They're making sure, making sure logistically that that comes off. And so they're responsible for this uh, intense week coming up next week. And what you have here, um, the last few years, listeners um, may, you know, are probably familiar with the fact that Russell Moore's uh, received significant blowback within certain corners of Southern Baptist life and evangelical life. Uh, a lot of it had to do, apparently, with uh, with conflict over the Trump administration um, and the okay, endorsement Ma- of that Matthew, uh, sorry, you're it turns you're, out, um, not all of that. Yeah, Matthew, yeah, sorry about that. Your connection is just a, a bit out. rough right now, and this is such important information. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a break a little early this morning here, and we're going to try to reconnect during that break and see if we can come back with a little bit better connection. So stay with us. More to come when we, uh, after the break in just a moment. Welcome back to the show. We're still uh, doing some work getting connected with Matthew Hawkins. It sounds like he is back on the line now. We have lots of different ways to get in contact with you, Matt. You can't get away from us. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to trying to be here, trying to trying to be present, you know. I, I love it. No, thanks. Uh, so if the connection gets a little dodgy again, we might not be able to work it out, but let's give it a go. You were just kind of giving us a sense of some of the internal mechanics uh, of the SBC, but... Uh, take us into the time in which uh, we see some of the revelations of Russell Moore behind the scenes. You're obviously at ground zero in this organization in a lot of levels, and I'm sure have a lot of relationships in that place. What are you seeing in some of these places, and how are you responding to this? Yeah, one thing I want folks to keep in mind is that uh, institutional transitions are hard regardless of uh, the particulars. And so you have uh, ERLC staff right now who, for the next many months, really, uh, probably well into next year, are going to be going through a t- uh, of anxiety uh, and drama and uncertainty, and that's no fun for anybody. Uh, I lived through uh, an, a leadership transition at the ERLC from uh, Richard Land's leadership uh, in 2013 to Russell Moore's, and uh, even though I, yeah, I think Matt, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to kind of cut this one off. Unfortunately, where uh, we just can't get the right connection on this one, so I think we'll step aside and yeah, look forward to trying to make a connection again uh, the next time you can join us here on. On Mornings with Carmen. So we'll probably try to get your cell uh, at some point, even this morning, yeah. But until we can get that connection, I think, to help fill in some of the gaps for all of you as listeners, there has been obviously a lot of back and forth within the Southern Baptist Convention. I appreciate what Matt said in giving us a bit of a clue that the SBC is the largest organization. It's it's run as a relatively flat organization in the sense that it, it subscribes to this idea of the priesthood of all believers that came as a result of the Protestant Reformation, kind of in trying to reform the Catholic Church at that time, because the Catholic Church was very much seen as this top-down hierarchy in which power and control was reserved for the select few. And in those places, it became very corrupt in the uh, indulgences as well. And so we're, we're seeing that within the SBC and sort of this priesthood of believers, that there got to be a lot of infighting and uh, apparently some different points of view. But uh, some of the revelations that came out from some of the trusted people is that there was a lot of abuse behind the scenes, maybe some sexual abuse, as well as 
uh, some violent abuse in, in terms of how people were being treated with one another. So that's where we kind of stand in the situation. And Matthew's at the ground level of that. And I think we have a better connection back with you, Matthew. So I just tried to summarize a little bit where we are. But how are you responding to some of this? I know it's complex, as you said, and people's jobs are going to be affected. It, it's, a, it's a pretty significant situation when, the, when one of the largest Christian organizations in our country is going through this. Southern Baptist Convention um, writ large in our prayers, especially next week. Uh, next week is our annual meeting, and we're going to decide a lot of these things. And so uh, a lot of the, the fallout from uh, some of the revel- recent revelations about uh, an SBC is covering up uh, the mistreatment of sexual abusers. Or, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. So strike one, strike two, strike three. We are. Uh, I know you and I, Matt, are good uh, baseball fans and good friends in baseball, but I think we better uh, call this one a day. So if I kind of pick up the narrative from here for all of you listening this morning and, and seeing some of these revelations come through, I think where we can reflect and begin to wonder about as a people of faith is, uh, again, the, the kingdom will remain, Christianity will remain, this expression of it is coming to sort of an end. And I think there's some open-ended questions about why that might be and where where might the failures lie because we have to look at where the failures are in order to help find that health and wholeness moving forward and as we're reading different people and and trusted voices in the midst of this sometimes those trusted voices can even be hard to find i think there gets to be a, a general consensus that the failures may be in three different places that we can wonder about as people and one might be a failure of theology in that uh, it's been a pretty recent development within the church, maybe the last 60 or 70 years in which there's been this emphasis that splits apart something called salvation from discipleship. And Gary Stratton on the program yesterday talked a little bit about the Apostles' Creed and how we sort of, and uh, there's this big black hole between the virgin birth and the death of Jesus. And that black hole represents three years in the life of Jesus and what he taught us how to follow him. And when we have a very thin view of salvation, that salvation only has to do with the question of where we go when we die. It leaves discipleship sort of functionally optional, and, and it's created kind of a situation in which people will enter into some sort of ritual, maybe at a Wednesday night youth group or a Sunday morning service, in which they try to position themselves properly for heaven through a prayer. And, and however we think of the merits of that, once somebody gets saved through that lens, uh, discipleship does, for many people, kind of become a bit optional. We don't have the idea of what it means to live in a full, robust, biblical view of salvation that isn't different from discipleship. It's actually included within it. And when we look at the biblical witness and in terms of this theology, to be saved means that we've been saved from the power of sin and death ruling in our life. It's not just a salvation for the future. It is a salvation for the present. And it's one of those things that we just don't talk about much, but the biblical witness is clear that we are subject and enslaved to the power of sin and death in our life. But uh, the great hope is that in Jesus's resurrection is he defeated the power of sin and death. And so while we still struggle with that power within these perishable bodies, uh, while we wait to be raised imperishable, we have access to a life through the power of the spirit that actually does increasingly form and transform us into the very image of God from the inside out. So when we're wrestling through these issues of hypocrisy where people are clearly different behind the scenes than they are in their public presentation of themselves, there's a failure of theology going on there in terms of helping people understand how to access that power that really does authentically turn us into not just actions of love, but people of love and not just actions of joy, but people of joy and not just actions of hope, but people of hope. And to get into the robust theology of working out our salvation, Philippians 
in fear and trembling or in first Peter that we grow up in our salvation. When we understand salvation as the fullness of being saved from the power of sin and death, having its final say, both in this life and in the life to come, we can engage in a different kind of discipleship where we begin to authentically shine with the light. So that's one part of the failures. The second part of the failure that people are referencing would be a failure of philosophy. We'll talk about that with Chris Martin coming up next in the in the second half of this hour. And that would be that we sort of have reduced down Christianity to maybe 16 to 18 minute sermons with YouTube videos and, and, and points. I remember learning how to preach, I suppose, in seminary. And, and we were taught to make sure that you can hook the audience, that you keep them with you as, as they laugh. Uh, make sure to not get too deep for people because they can't handle it. Some of these kinds of instruction was going on behind the scene. And we've seen the result of that where we have very significantly complex issues in our society that are troubling all of us that are listening this morning that are part of this, whether it's sexuality with our children, whether it's what to do with the environment, um, how, how to handle increasing technology, the fracturing of mobility, all of these different things. Social media are very complex issues. And to be equipped and to be equipping the saints for ministry, to use the language of the text, with 16-minute entertaining sermons, I think many people are starting to wonder about that. And Chris will wonder about that with us as well. There's a third one, too. But, Paul, you want to jump in here as well. Well, you are talking about the teaching aspect, and yet, you know, we oftentimes think of a pastor as teacher. But what does the word pastor come from? It has to do with shepherd. Yeah, it absolutely So, does. I mean, okay, you're, you're taking a group of people and individuals from one place, and you're hopefully moving them, teaching them, discipling them, and there you go, that word again, into something deeper and more robust. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because those two work together, right, Paul? Mm -hmm. Just going back to blending those two, a failure of theology and a failure of philosophy, Jesus never said once to his disciples, why don't you hang out here for a second while I go be crucified and be raised, and then you actually will get saved, something along those lines. It's a very interesting, different, maybe perhaps weird view of salvation, Mm -hmm. where salvation is, uh, Jesus' very name means salvation. So follow me, and I will begin to give you the power over sin and death in in this life that shines the hope of the life to come in which all of it is destroyed and everything is under his feet. So uh, pastors are meant to shepherd people in what it means to engage with that power of sin and death so that we really can shine with authentic life and the struggles of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's a huge struggle. There is a battle going on of life and death in this world all day long. And so to equip our fellow believers with how to do that is, is a big deal. I think the last thing we can talk about is uh, what's called syncretism or the blending of cultural ideas with, um, with, with the church. It happens all throughout history. The peculiar expression of it now would be the idea that the church is a business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we we've sort of have adopted free market enterprise capitalistic ideas into the church. And we try to create products and do demographic analysis and try to grow the church and convince people to come and persuade and market and all of these sorts of things, even functionally competing against one another in very large churches that are quote unquote successful in terms of bringing people through the doors with their products while smaller churches are emptying out. And it's, it's what Mm -hmm. you said earlier this week, a church alive is worth the drive. You get, (laughs) well, that that phrase, yeah, it it is. And and there was on a billboard that then you market the church and, and move forward. So if we can kind of reckon through and wrestle through some of these things, it's what I talk about in my class with students all the time. And, and, and here, Here's where the hope is. Again, the kingdom will remain. The kingdom will absolutely remain. It is never under threat. It is sovereign in that way. And as we talk openly and frankly about these failures of theology, failures of uh, philosophy, and failures of syncretism, 
I have watched the the sparkle in the eyes come back to the next generation. And in many ways, they are wiser and smarter than I am. And in many ways, they need to be shepherded into the future in these ways. But there is great hope. I see them. They care like you do and like I do about fixing their eyes on Jesus. And so we'll continue to do that even while we're having frank conversations about the time in which we live. We will always do so with encouragement and hope. And Chris Martin will do that with us as well. Coming up next, we'll talk a little bit about the intersection of social media and Christianity and how uh, maybe we have some things to watch for even in that. So stay with us. If you've got some comments or questions you'd like to say or to ask as well, This morning, I would love to hear from you about anything that I just said around a failure of theology, a failure of philosophy, and a failure of syncretism or becoming a church as business, and maybe some ideas and and thoughts of hope from all of you as listeners. I'd love to hear. Please text the studio at 877-933-2484. Let's continue to fix our eyes on Jesus together. So, Paul, if you thought I was heretical a moment ago with the idea of sort of these three things that we need to look at, a failure of theology and philosophy and syncretism, I'm going to become even a little bit more heretical uh, this morning in suggesting that while I I can appreciate from afar a dog, and I know there's many, many, many dog owners now out there that will swear by dogs. You know, Carmen may not let you host the show I was just going to say, I know this could be the last morning for me, and so I'm going to go out with a bang. I might get escorted out because of my position on dogs. I can appreciate a dog from afar. I, I far prefer a cat. And so, again, if, if you're listening this morning at 877-933-2484, I'd love to con- you to comment on some of these failures that we've been describing, but also tell me why I should become a dog person because I'm currently a cat person. But here's one reason why I might become a dog person. Okay. And uh, the headline is, Ohio Dog Alerts Owner That He Won The Million Dollar Prize. So Lassie may have some competition, so goes the story. After one Ohio dog alerted his owner, he had won the state's Vax A Million jackpot. Mark Klein won a $1 million prize on Wednesday, but didn't know of the win until his dog started barking because of the doorbell ringing. Klein's wife checked their ring camera and saw, quote, guys in suits on their porch, one of which was the governor of Ohio. Klein was then able to watch the drawing announcement live with the governor, thanks to his faithful pooch. And he's going to donate the winnings for scholarships for people in need. So. One of the things we have to be is people of intellectual honesty. And when the evidence demands that we shift our position, we have to be willing to do that. And here's what I'm going to tell you about my position on dogs now, given the story, is I am entirely, entirely unwilling to shift my position. I'm going to need more evidence from the listeners about why I should become a dog person instead of a cat person. Peter, think this through. The doorbell rings. What does your cat do? It runs away. It's silent. The dog at least is trying to help you. Well, I, okay. I have a feeling the evidence might mount against me this morning, but, I, but I'm willing to stand oh, yeah. firm and die on this mountain for a bit unless I confront it with something different again. 877-933-2484. Let me know why I should become a dog person instead of a cat person. Mom, Dad, when was the last time you and your child went out and did something fun? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. What teens want more than anything else is a relationship. And one of the best ways I know to build relationship is through sharing experiences. So my challenge for you this week is to do this. Go do something fun with your teen. Try cycling or horseback riding, skateboarding or paintballing, cooking, baking, sculpting or hiking, scuba diving, snorkeling, jet skiing or whitewater rafting. Make up your own list. But you get the point. Do something fun. 
Before you know it, your little boy will be all grown up and on his own. So don't wait any longer. Start building the relationship today. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Well, as what tends to happen in my classroom, we sometimes bat around the merits of Calvinism versus Armenianism, and, and that can certainly divide the class. But I, I would say this, that nothing divides the class faster than when we have the cat and the dog conversation. And sure enough, you listeners, I love hearing from you. You've been texting in fast and furious at 877-933-2484 about whether I should stand firm in my cat-loving ways or if I should become uh, you know, malleable in my position, evolve my position a little bit. And some different comments. Uh, Lisa says, cat person all the way. Embrace and celebrate felines. Dogs are wonderful companions for many, but kitties have my heart. Stand firm. Oh, I love linking together with other believers like this, Lisa. Thanks so much. Lori, stand strong as well. Uh, Megan says that a cat is independent. A dog needs you more. You can't leave it for long. But... The right kind. I have a Jack Russell Terrier. Our third one is the best and a great picture there. One more on this, too. I, I thought Lois had maybe the most helpful insight for me this morning. Peter, you don't have to choose. You can be a cat and a dog person. And Lois, you know, we have five children at home, and it reminds me of the story that when we started having two, three, four kids, I thought I'd have to divide up my heart among all of them. But I didn't realize that you could actually grow a new heart with every kid and they occupy their own space. So maybe I need to explore the wisdom of your idea. Let's welcome Chris Martin into the show right now, too. That music you heard a second ago represents his ongoing engagement here with The Morning Show. And Chris, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, thanks, Peter. I'm happy to be here, and it's fun to be back chatting with you, too. Yeah, so at the risk of asking you this question before we jump into the intersection of social media and Christianity and and knowing that our friendship probably is on the line in a lot of ways here, a cat person or a dog person, Chris? Uh, yeah, I'm, you're not going to be happy with me. I'm a pretty big time dog person, pretty staunch dog person, mainly because I like to have a pet in my house who isn't plotting to take over my home at any given moment. Uh, and to have one that's, that's more a supporting influence and, and able to be snuggled with and, and not wonder if it's like grabbing a knife from my cupboard or something like that uh, while I'm not looking. So that's, that's my, that's my take. I'm, I'm a dog person, always have been, but, but I, you know, I, I understand it. If you, people want to live on the wild side and live with an animal that's always lurking and kind of wondering how it can take over the home, I'm not going to stop you from that. You know, if you want to, <laughs> Live your life, man. It's it's great. It's fine. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I'll have to deal with that evidence again as part of my, my exercise in intellectual honesty this morning. Now, Chris, you obviously have been dialed into <laughs> social media for quite some time, and uh, you sent an article along that you and I can engage with a little bit. I've been suggesting that among the things we need to wrestle through as the church is what it means to deal with serious issues as part of a serious faith. And we're not talking about a grumpy faith, and we're not talking about a dour faith, but we are talking about the idea of waking up to probably what is a more significant war of good and evil going on within the heavens all around us at any given moment and, and people's lives at stake. And, and social media can be a place where even that idea gets reduced a bit. So talk to us about some of your insights about the effect of social media on maybe the dumbing down of our faith. Yeah, the social media is a great trivialization machine. Um, it I, I use social media in my work. Um, I've I spent the first seven years of my career working for LifeWay Christian Resources, trying to use uh, the resources that they were 
publishing and the resources that they had financially to use social media for good and to inject the light of the gospel into the internet world, cyberspace as it used to be called back in the day. And um, what I've learned is over time is that you can do that and and social media can be used for good. You have to do it very intentionally. Um, Like because because of original sin, like everything else in life, if we approach social media in our sort of default mode without finding ways to intentionally use it for good, we're going to slip into using it for sinful purposes or, or at least uh, less than constructive purposes. And so my concern uh, most recently is with how we assume social media can be used uh, as a means of communication as for, for matters as weighty as things we talk about offline. So Neil Postman is one of my biggest influences in life and thought. Um, his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is easily the most influential book in my life outside of Scripture. And it was written in 1985, um, and it was primarily about how we're entering into this age of show business, and the the invasion of the television into the home has created this sort of insatiable desire for entertainment at all times in all places. And Neil Postman, who is a media scholar at New York University, he passed away in the early 2000s from cancer, I believe. Um, he was concerned about uh, how entertainment would sort of become the cornerstone value for all of us uh, in all areas of life. He was concerned about how entertainment would affect politics, how uh, he said it matters more that a politician is entertaining today than if he or she has good ideas. He was concerned about entertainment's effect on communication, how uh, – we would just try to entertain each other rather than have actual constructive conversation. He was concerned about how entertainment would affect the news, how you may not hear about some bridge that was undergoing a massive repair in your hometown because who wants to read a story in the newspaper or watch a story on the local news about a boring bridge repair, but you may hear about some terrible massacre of young people across the world, which is no doubt important, and and we can be praying for those sorts of things, but that's sensational, and it gets us feeling like there's this massive crisis perhaps on our doorstep when it's half a world away, and there are things maybe more important, though less entertaining, that we should care about closer to home. And also, he was concerned about where it pertains to our discussion. He was concerned about how, how the television would negatively impact people of faith. Neil Postman was a Jewish man himself, uh, not a Christian, but I would say friendly toward Christianity, and that comes through in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he he was concerned at the time in 1985 about televangelism and how televangelism would make uh, Christianity seem more cheap and light uh, than it really was. He says at one point, he says, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. Again, he means it in the way you mean it, not in a sort of dour, grumpy way, but in a like serious stuff. It's not It's not a light matter. Christianity is not a light matter. He says when it is delivered, when it, Christianity, when Christianity is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. And he was talking about that in terms of the television. But I think so much of what we deal with on social media as Christians is simply too weighty to be dealt with on social media. In the same way, he says in his book at one point, he says, you can't do philosophy through smoke signals, Uh, smoke signals being an early version of communication, right? You build a fire and send smoke signals in a sort of early Morse code. Um, He says, you can't do philosophy through smoke signals. And I would say there are certain matters of weight, whether it be hard theological issues perhaps matters of church malpractice or otherwise, that probably shouldn't be dealt with on social media because 
what we often don't understand is if we're debating whether or not, for instance, a, a recent topic has been the Southern Baptist Convention and some some problems with leadership at the top of the Southern Baptist Convention. I run in that world. And there's been this constant debate about social media or about Southern Baptist Convention leadership, how they've handled um, leadership malpractice, specifically in the area of sexual abuse within the last few years. And I think it's important that these conversations are happening. But I think that when they're happening in line, you know, in a Twitter feed, along with uh, funny cat videos and goofy memes and advertisements for Coca-Cola, that kind of cheapens mm. and, and trivializes a super important conversation that may be better had in, a, in an environment that uh, understands the burden and the weight of such important matters. And so I think we just need to be aware of that as, as believers and understand that social media cannot bear the weight of some of the weightiest, uh, some of the most important matters of our faith. And if we expect social media to bear that weight, uh, the conversation is going to be trivialized and we're just going to end up frustrated. Yeah, I think that's really an incredibly helpful insight. Postman was very prescient in his times about what might come based on the existing circumstances. And I think it's incumbent upon us to be as prescient in terms of what are the implications into the future and get ahead of that curve. Uh, Chris, when you talk, we'll take a short break and come back in just a minute. But as you were talking, I was thinking a, a bit about the movie Hunger Games and uh, and in this uh, and, and the book series where you see all of these districts that are struggling just even to make it. It's a brutal world. It's a tough world. And yet there's at the center of all of this this place called the Capitol. And it's filled with people that are amusing themselves all day long with decadence and with wealth and with food and, and, and an entire lack of seriousness while the world is falling apart all around them. And I think it was a pretty chilling picture of what often happens in terms of why organizations and empires fall is because they decay from the inside in terms of decadence and amusement. So we'll pick up that conversation a bit with Chris Martin here next on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge here today as well as all of next week. And Chris Martin and I are close to being able to mend fences, even though he's wrong in his position on dogs. I, I have hope for him that he's starting to show a little bit of repentance, Chris. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I would, you know, honestly, like if I'm going to be straight, I would love to have like a cat and a dog. I have a dog. I love him. Uh, I would love to have a cat, but I am super allergic. <laughs> oh, so yeah, a lot I, of people are. Get I it. unfortunately can't. Yeah, I can't even dip my toe into that water. But yeah, I I, I do I appreciate cats. I just like to joke <laughs> about how they always look like they're trying to take over the world because it's kind of funny do. to think about. They definitely do. Well, I, I think this article that you've posted here related to this idea of the intersection of social media and things of the faith, and, and you've titled it, matters too important for social media using Neil Postman, uh, who in the 1980s was talking about the coming entertainment culture and what that might mean for a lot of different organizations, politics and other places in our country, but including our faith organizations as well. And back to this quote where he said, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. And Chris, I'd love to get your comments on that last phrase where he says it's another kind of religion altogether. From the perspective of history, what we see very often is that when there is a failure of sort of whatever expression of Christendom or Christianity that culture 
has that some people will readily and understandably say, well, it's an attack of Satan against the church, and that's why the church is failing, except from a theological point of view, Jesus is very clear. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail, right? I mean, when, when the church is the church, the, the hell has no chance in that situation. But what we tend to see through the lens of history, and it's a little bit more of a provocative, but I think important thought, is that God woos his people and he calls his people and he invites his people and he calls and he's long-suffering and he's patient. But, but if there's something that is inconsistent, some expression of our lives or the lives of an organization, the lives of a nation, the lives of whatever, if something is inconsistent with his kingdom, then eventually God removes his hand and lets that fail uh, so that a new expression more consistent with his kingdom will come. And so I'm curious what your thoughts on that, because Postman said that as things have become amusing and as we're... we're we we kind of became an entertainment-based church uh, in, in some ways uh, with all the hypocrisy that's happened. It's become another kind of religion altogether. Is, is it too much to at least wonder if God is removing his hand and letting something fail that has become entirely inconsistent with his kingdom? I don't think that's, I don't think you're going too far in saying that. I think a lot of times when um, malpractice or uh, failures of leadership or um, issues are revealed in whether it's our local church, perhaps our denomination or collection of churches, whatever, when we see failures within the Christian church in some way, whether it's yet another leader having a moral failure or our, our local church falling apart for one reason or another, which is a, a sad situation, when we see things like that, I think like you said, it is tempting to say, oh, the Satan's just attacking our church. Well, no, we have to understand that I think sometimes when we say Satan's attacking the, the church or our church, um, it's kind of a cop-out, frankly, uh, because what we need to recognize is the Christian church is uh, always trying to become more like Christ, but always not being like Christ, because sin doesn't leave just because we're the church. And so I think it's important for us, whether on social media or off, when we recognize fail- failures of leadership, moral failures of pastors or church leaders of some kind, whatever the problem may be, um, that this is the people of God acting poorly and not acting in accordance with the calling that's on their lives. Um, and so I think it's important that we have that. And I look, when when God led the people, led his people out of Egypt, the plan wasn't to wander in is Egypt. Sorry, the plan wasn't to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. <laughs> right. I mean, God knew God understand that because he's uh, omniscient, he knew that was going to happen. But but that wasn't like you know, the, the, the plan or how, at least how the Israelites thought it was going to go. Um, so it, it's clear to me throughout scripture, that's far from the only example that God refines his people in ways that maybe look like brokenness to us. And, um, I think that when we see failures of the church, um, it is incumbent upon us to own those failures to whatever extent we are responsible for them, whether we've ignored sin, and just kind of brushed it aside. Because, we, you know, we do love our favorite sins. We may complain about liberalism in politics, but not pay attention to um, pride in local church leadership, for instance. Or, you know, we, we, we're we always—a common theme that I've seen, especially on social media in my world, is a, a group of Christians, and it's, it's not like one group, but just there's always a um, malleable group of Christians, this amorphous group— who always feel like we're at war with with secularism, which often in that group, what happens is they're not will. This group is unwilling to examine their their themselves and the sin within their own particular movement of Christianity. And I think what we have to be 
cautious of is feeling like, oh, the government's going to do this to Christians or we're going to be attacked from this way or that way politically or, or whatever or, or religiously. And sometimes it's important for us to kind of like get our own house in order um, and to pay attention to our own sin and like own our own problems, because a lot of times movements not again, Christ will keep his church, but movements tend to decay from the inside as much as they get attacked from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're not careful to keep our own houses in order, it won't matter if the robber comes in to steal and destroy because he won't have anything left to steal and destroy. Um, and so I think it's important for us to own our own sin and, and recognize when the movements that we may ascribe to may have um, gone awry and and see what we can do to become more Christ-like out of those things. Yeah, Chris, I think that's incredibly important and wise insight into all of this. It makes me think as you're talking about how relationships just between two people come back together into health, if there's been a fracture there. And, and the start of that coming back towards health is being ruthlessly honest with oneself about uh, the failure that may have taken place and and not out of fear because God has this amazing grace that reaches into our failures and calls us to life. I mean, I, so long suffering and so patient and where our sin abounds, his grace can abound all the more as long as we're so willing to be honest about that. And in relationships heal when people move into that place and they find a new pathway forward. And I think that's probably at this point, the invitation of the church. So thanks for the work that you're doing. I would love for our listeners to be able to catch that article that you just dropped here uh, on the internet. Where can they find it? Yeah, termsofservice.social. It's where you can subscribe to my newsletter. I write twice a week, maybe three times a week sometimes. So you can head over to termsofservice.social and find it there. I love it. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to hear your voice again. And thanks for the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Have a great day, man. Good to talk. Take a short break and wrap up the first hour of the show and preview what's coming up in hour two here on the 11th of June on Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Love a text from the listener just coming in, Scott. Thanks for writing in about the conversation we just had. Peter, the gates of hell not prevailing is an interesting phrase. Gates are a defensive weapon and not an offensive one. It doesn't apply to the church being attacked, but the church being victorious. And on from there. And Scott, I'm so glad you pointed that out because I think we miss that so often in that passage is that the church is meant to be on the attack against the darkness and the darkness has no chance. So the, the mindset that somehow we are subject to the power of sin and death. And that's why, uh, you know, Satan can be victorious. Satan is only victorious to the extent that we continue to persist in hard heartedness and unwilling to look at our sin. But boy, when the people of faith move in humility, surrender, repentance, and trust, there is a, a power that is unleashed in the biblical witness that begins to bring light in the darkness. And what we know about light is a light will shine in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. It's interesting. You can't actually turn on a darkness switch. If there's light in the room, there's no such thing as a darkness switch that can overcome it. But if there is darkness in the room, all you got to do is hit the switch and the light shines all the way through the darkness. And so the darkness cannot overcome it. Appreciate that, Scott. We're going to change the conversation when we come back here in just a few moments. We're going to talk about some of the media headlines and some of the movies that are out there today. We do such a great job with some of the representatives of Plugged In. I know Adam Holtz is not with us this morning, but um, we do have another guest coming in that will talk us through some of the new episodes coming out. Yes, Paul AC will be in. He's yeah, always fun. He is always fun. So stay with us. It should be some interesting uh, conversation as even movie theaters are reopening a bit more and new shows coming out on Netflix all the time, how to navigate that for our own life and for the lives of our kids. So stay with us more to come here on this 11th of June.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.